Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, January 13th. Ooh, forgot about that. 2012. I better change the date on this. This week, episode 231 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Back with me in the studio again this week is the Z-Man, Cliff's Lock. It's a cold Friday, Joe. I'll tell you. It was a... Quite in a, a challenge getting here, but we made it. Uh, assisting at the controls today is our newest team member, Val Bender. Hello. Hello, Val. Joining us on the phone will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and today's guest, we will have an interview with David Berg of Life Energy Associates. We'll have our halftime as usual, our, of course, our roundup with Dr. Wow. And uh, before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of iq radio when you inquire about their services and products Okay, to join us live, you can follow the link on your invitation or go to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. You can also download shows after we are done here. You can either listen live streaming on our website or, again, follow that link that says go to the show. You can download shows there or from iTunes. We also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits available just email me, ask for a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Thanks, Joe.
Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer. Two listeners, John, John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, and Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products in Mars, PA, correctly identified Jacques Barzun as the source of the quotation. Teaching is not a lost art, but the regard for it is a lost tradition. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, January 13, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. Scientists tend to agree that this involuntary respiratory reflex regulates the carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in the blood. Name it. Back to you, Joe. I had to take a peek at the right answer there. Cliff, interesting. All right. This week we've got David Berg. David's a professional engineer and founder of Life Energy Associates of Concord, Massachusetts. He specializes in providing indoor air quality diagnostic and mitigation services with a focus on maximizing the healthfulness of indoor environments at the lowest energy cost. To meet this goal, David uses a combination of building science and industrial hygiene principles and techniques. The primary tools he uses are CO2 and dew point monitoring, tracer gas testing, particulate monitoring, pressure mapping, and airflow pattern determination. Using that in combination with his knowledge about building enclosures and HVAC, he assists building owners with improving indoor air quality and works on ventilation and energy issues. Mr. Berg is a PE and a graduate of Northeastern University with a master's degree from Harvard's School of Public Health. Let's, uh, we have some music for David. David. Oh, we got to unmute David. There we go. Do we have you on the line, David? Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. <clears throat> Excuse me. I just got a frog all of a sudden here. Anyway, Dave, can you give us a little background or history on how you went from you know, engineering to industrial hygiene and then kind of combining building science and IAQ? Well, it, it sort of the path started early because I was growing up in a household where my father was an HVAC design engineer. And, of course, everybody knows that you need to understand the performance and condition of the HVAC system if you're going to have any hope of understanding the IAQ conditions. And then my mother had degrees in economics and psychology, which is useful because all decisions come down to the almighty dollar and buildings make people crazy. So I, even before I went on and got my degree in chemical engineering and then environmental health, I was well positioned. Then when I was in graduate school, I ran into Jack Spangler and initially did some work with him and Bill Turner in 
diagnosing and understanding um, indoor air quality issues in different buildings. And then as, as time went on, Jack Spengler went from Spengler Environmental Consultants to Environmental Health and Engineering. Uh, I continued to work occasionally for them, but set up my own shop because uh, I like the freedom of, of being my own boss. So that sort of that combination of factors put me in, a, in an excellent position to capitalize and, and grow with the IAQ and green building and sustainability evolution as it's uh, been occurring. You know, I, I'm glad you bring up uh, Jack Spangler. We're still trying to get him on the show, but haven't been successful so far, but we'll, we'll keep working on it. But I noticed when I was reviewing your, your uh, CV, you, were, you wrote one of the chapters in the IAQ book. I can't remember the name of it. I, got, I know it's that big one. Dieter and I have looked at, um, oh, do you recall the name that, uh, I know Jack was in there. You had a section in there. I know Ed Light had a section in there. Do you recall? Um, I will find it here. It was. Um, it's a great. It's a great reference. I've got it on my shelf, but I just can't remember the the exact name for it. Anyway, um, we'll find that and we'll get get it out to the listeners because I think. Well, I, I looked on my bookshelf. It is the IAQ handbook that uh, Spengler asked me to write the chapter on HVAC systems. That's what it was, and you wrote the chapter on HVAC systems in there. Then I didn't realize that until this morning. Uh, was that a big that that's been updated i believe a few times or am i am i wrong on that i do not know on that i okay. i don't think so i haven't heard i think i would have heard it's been around for a uh, while huh yes okay well listen you you go back as far as 1980 I'm, I'm just curious what have been the most important changes you've seen over that you know 30 year time frame um well there's been increased awareness slowly but surely, of the uh, importance of providing a, a healthful indoor environment instead of just historically, you know, perceived comfort. You know, ASHRAE 62.1, if you read the definition of, of what they call for acceptable indoor air quality, that means a substantial majority, at least 80 percent, is, is not dissatisfied. So according to ASHRAE 62.1, you can have up to 20 percent of the people dissatisfied, and that's acceptable. I think slowly we're seeing a need to go beyond that and, and call for, for good indoor air quality, which even in the uh, ASHRAE IAQ guide says virtually no occupants will di express dissatisfaction. Um, so that implies to me that, you, that the ventilation rates need to start exceeding those listed in ASHRAE 62.1. You know, life... So go ahead, I'm sorry. So that's the road we're on. But you were about to say? Well, Life Energy Associates started about, I guess, 30 years ago. Were you, I mean, I'm curious, were you busy right off the bat? Or did have you gotten busier over the years? Do you, you know, how has your business changed over the years? Um, as I think is, is typical for um, the independent uh, consultant, peaks and valleys. There have been times that I've been very busy, and there have been times that I've been very slow, but... I've had the opportunity then to do projects uh, on my house. Over that uh, period, um, my former summer 700-square-foot summer cottage has expanded to be 2,800 square feet of conditioned space, plus the heat-storing greenhouse, plus uh, a naturally ventilated uh, garden shed. Um, I've got three-quart of wood already stacked for this year and next, and perhaps the year after that as well. <laughs> 
Well, I'd like to urge listeners to check it out, too, at Sage Farm, S-A-G-E Farm.net. Is that correct, David? That's correct, sir. Excellent. It's fascinating stuff. I enjoyed cool. it. Very good. Uh, yeah. Cliff? Um, Dave, did you recently drop your CIH certification, or am I incorrect? Well, I, 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 um, I didn't succeed in renewing it. It's not that I said, oh, I'm going to drop this. It's just my anniversary came around. I started submitting information, and um, because of uh, the world I'm in, a, a lot of my potential credits were in the green building and sustainability. And uh, the people at ABIH uh, rejected a lot of the extracurricular activities I did to stay at the forefront of my career. And then as I dug into it deeper, I had the right to appeal their decision. And I thought that was a little adversarial, you know, instead of saying that, well, this is, you know, we don't have enough information to evaluate the appropriateness of this, so we're going to reject it, or could you give us more information? And I just, I thought about how much, you know, I'm spending hundreds of dollars to maintain that CIH certification, and... I'm getting more involved. I'm getting further and further away. They realize that. I realize that. So I said, you know, I just I'm not going to jump through your hoop. Every fi- for those that aren't familiar, every five years they ask for documentation of how you've maintained your familiarity with developments in the field, and so that's a rather onerous thing that happens every five years. And um, this year I decided not to put in the time and effort because I wasn't. It's been a while since I've been required to have my CIH seal on any of the work I do. That's typically for municipalities, and I tend to work more in the private sector. You know, I think it's a very, very good point. I think a lot of people are faced with the same decision. You work hard to get these credentials, and it takes time and money and effort to... uh, to retain, so I, I kind of apply your applaud your courage in, in making the decision. Actually, I think I'm going to be doing something similar. <laughs> <laughs> David, I I would really like to get into the meat of one of your you know your passions, and that's outdoor air monitoring of outdoor air. And to kind of lead into it, I'd like to get you to tell listeners, you know, what led to your focus on outdoor air and monitoring of outdoor air. I know you told us that. You know, your father was in the HVAC business and that, you know, you obviously wrote a chapter on HVAC. But, you know, what led to your interest in outdoor air and the monitoring of it? Well, I I guess the realization that a very critical, unnecessary, but insufficient condition is the delivery of sufficient quantities of ventilation air to dilute and remove the air contaminants that are coming not only from the furnishings and the activities, but the people themselves. I'm very concerned about the viruses that are being shed, especially um, as I look into the future. Perhaps it's my public health um, experience, but I'm concerned about viruses that are mutating, and most most office spaces do not do a good job of isolating that the viruses that uh, an individual, an ill individual, might be shedding. Uh, the historical has been um, more kind of comfort, uh, provide a uniform temperature profile in the space. And to do that, the space is very well mixed. So that means particulates are fairly uniform 
and as particulates go, so will viruses. So if somebody's in there shedding viruses in an underventilated space because the VAV box hasn't opened up because the space was overcooled, then it puts everybody else in that room at significant risk. So um, that's sort of um, how I've come to realize that CO2 monitoring at the periphery of the space can tell you a lot of information how all aspects of the HVAC system, especially the distribution component, are functioning in, 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 in providing a healthful or non-healthful indoor environment. And, you know, much of the world is just content to look and say, well, how much outdoor air is coming in? But to me, that's insufficient because it doesn't really look at whether that air is getting to where the people actually are in the building, especially if they move around. You know, the other thing you've added, and I don't know how long ago you've added this, but you also focus a great deal on dew point and, I guess, absolute humidity at the boundary, so the, the building enclosure, the building envelope. What led to your interest in that? Well, as I started looking into monitoring of CO2, I realized that the individual wall-mounted CO2 has become a commodity, and so there was a lot of price pressure to, to be the lowest-cost um, individual sensor. And unfortunately, uh, third-party analysis has, has said that many of the CO2 just about all the CO2 sensors failed to meet the manufacturer's specification for accuracy. So I got involved with um, the development of a shared sensor monitoring system where there's a network of tubes to pull air back to a central location and use one high-quality sensor for doing CO2. But once you've gone to that trouble, you have the ability to very easily and cheaply add another sensor. And so the logical thing was a chilled mirror sensor to tell you about the humidity and the combination to me of ventilation analysis through CO2 and moisture management assessment through dew point are two very powerful tools for assessing the healthfulness as well as the energy profile of the building. But in some buildings it's gone even further that's also looked at carbon monoxide and in one building the client asked for hydrogen sulfide um, because they were concerned about um, so um, nearby construction, we ended up finding a, a, a poorly vented uh, sewer connection because of hydro, uh, hydrogen sulfide showing up in the building. Hmm. Were they alerted to this from odors? or? Yes, they, they were periodically getting odors, and they were concerned about the odors from the construction and whether that was finding its way into the building. A, a lot of times I've, I've been you know, doing things like tracer testing to document pathways of... Uh, of reentrainment and things like that, where uh, people want to understand and uh, hopefully mitigate odors that are showing up in buildings. You mentioned tracer testing. Maybe we could just get listeners uh, up to date on what what you mean when you say tracer testing, and maybe give a little example of that. And then um, I want to get back into this other issue for a moment. Sure. Uh, tracer testing. I typically use a chemical called sulfur hexafluoride which is typically not present in the environment, although it is occasionally used as a RF shield for high-voltage equipment, such as hospital CAT scanners. But with a portable electron capture gas chromatograph that I happen to have invested in many years ago, I can measure easily down to part per million quantities. And so I can characterize and identify pathways of odor movements in buildings. I've also used that... Uh, to quantify the ventilation rate in buildings that have been uh, vacated for one reason or another. So I don't have the 
the, the option of measuring CO2 to determine the ventilation because there are no people in the building. So I'll dose the building with CO2, with, excuse me, with SF6, and then as the ventilation system dilutes and removes it, there's a decay or dilution over time, and the more rapid that is, that dilution is, the greater the ventilation rate, and that, is a, that relationship is quantifiable. Tell us a little bit about the device again, that it's portable. Did you say it was a GC mass spec? Or, exactly. Okay. It's an electron capture detector. And um, forgive me while I become a nerd for a minute. The way it works is it's got a little piece of nickel 63, which is a beta emitter. So it's sending out a stream of electrons. But a stream of electrons is an electric current. So basically it uses the electronics to um, output that electric current, although it inverts it and zeroes it out. So when the sulfur hexafluoride, which has an affinity for electrons, goes by this uh, nickel 63, not all the electrons get to the collector plate because they've been grabbed by the sulfur hexafluoride, by the fluoride atoms as it goes by. And so what's actually happening is there's a dip in the standing current, in the current that uh, would otherwise be happening when the detector is bathed with argon, and the electronics invert that dip, and so I get a, a spike proportional to the amount of SF6 that's present. And so I can quantify, uh, a lot of times it's, I'm, I'm looking at odors, and, and so those locations that yield the highest concentration are most directly involved with the odor pathway. And then you can get even, you can look at subtle effects. If the tracer concentration builds rapidly and then drops rapidly when the SF6 is turned on and off, I know that it's a rather direct connection. If contract, you know, if it builds slowly and continues to build after I've shut it off, then it tells me that there's a large kind of mixing volume in the building between point A and point B. And so that can not only identify it's happening, but can help characterize where the potential bottleneck for effective mitigation might be. How portable or how large is this, is, is your device, is, is your sampling device? Oh, it's um, very small. It's, it's, <laughs> it's smaller than a bread box, as we used to say. Okay. And what would the cost be of this device, current cost, you um, think? Well, um, I, when I bought it a number of years ago, I was looking at a $10,000 investment. Okay. Unfortunately, the company in, in England that manufactured it then no longer manufactures it. So it's, uh, um, there, there are some alternatives available, but they're currently in the maybe $20,000 range to buy a portable electron capture detector for doing tracer studies. Okay. Cool. I think there's a, a was it S-cubed? Or, or some company like that, and, and the, um, that that currently offers a, a very nice product in this, but it, it's a bit, it is a bit pricey. Okay, that should, that was a text question from a listener actually there. So let me let me go along a little bit further. We in the introduction to the show and in the show announcement, we said you use CO2 dew point tracer gas testing, and we've covered those briefly. What I'd like to do is go through the other things you use, and then kind of tie it all together maybe with an example. The next one on the list is particulate monitoring. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about how you use particulate monitoring to assist you with indoor air quality and energy uh, in well, investigations? 
you know, one of the questions I'll sometimes get is, well, should we have our ducks cleaned? And so I look to, to do an objective assessment, and so I'll set up particulate sampling at the uh, supplier diffuser and monitor over a period of time and compare that with the outdoor air and the air leaving the air handler so I can see whether um, the ductwork is objectively clean or not. Um, so that's that's one thing okay. um, I, I did. and In fact, I did a, an occupancy study in a building um, and perfor- included particulate sampling to see uh, how the... Um, the HVAC was performing. It, it's tricky because most of the particulate in a in a in an office building is brought in by the people, and um, you know the, the the particulate that comes off their clothes when they take it off, and the skin cells that they're shedding continually through the day. You know, you mentioned that, and I I was you know reading through some articles you did, and I pulled out a a paragraph here. I just wanted to kind of go over it uh, when you talk about particulate. It said there was a clean room protocol PowerPoint presentation from Montana State University. Uh, states that people are the number one source of particulates, basically repeating what you said. But this is in clean rooms from shedding of skin, hair, lint, etc. According to that reference, an individual just standing or sitting motionless corresponds to a generation of 100,000 particles in the 0.3 micron or larger size. And walking at two miles per hour increases that generation to five million particles. I don't remember where, what article I pulled that from, David, and or you know what you were, what point you were trying to get across with that. But uh, I just thought it kind of fit in with what you just mentioned. Right, and um, I mean the the example there is if you look at people in clean rooms, they're just about a, a maximum amount of surface area of their skin is covered to try and minimize the skin cells that are shedding, um, you know, I, I, I get, you know, there's a lot of people out there talking about, oh, you know, put, put carpeting, carpeting will filter the air. I've yet to see a clean room that had carpeting. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, the, the, you know if, if you want a clean environment, you've got to do something about the people. And, um, but yet a lot of people say, oh, well, you need to have really good filtration in the building. I'm saying, well, unless you do something about the people, you're not going to ultimately have a clean space because the HVAC system is only one small con- contributor of particulate matter to the airstream and pales to, to that of the people. Now, you mentioned duct cleaning or HVAC cleaning. I'm just curious because we've had, you know, a little controversy over that. You've had studies that say, you know, it doesn't improve indoor air quality, um, or at least the, the existing studies don't show that it improves indoor air quality. Uh, you've had, um, there's more studies coming out now that show it, it may have an, an effect on energy uh, and energy savings, but I'm just curious, what's your, your thoughts on, on HVAC cleaning in general? It sounds like you do recommend it from time to time. I do, but I, I like to objectively say, yes, it's, you know, your distribution system is at that point in its life where it's adding significantly to the particulates that's getting past your filter bank, and therefore that's justification for cleaning it. And by the way, you should uh, bring me back in afterwards to document the effectiveness of the cleaning. But I, I, I like, because it's a controversial issue, I like to um, eliminate some of the subjective 
determination and make it a completely objective determination based on measurement of air coming out of the supply diffusers. That's a great point for uh, for our listeners. And I believe, I'm, I'm positive actually, in the back of the NADCA, National Air Duct Cleaners Association standard, they have a an appendix on doing particulate sampling and trying to verify whether or not the system's adding to or, or subtracting from the amount of particulate in the room. Uh, I don't know if you use that. It sounds like you use a, a slight variation on it. Yeah, I, I use kind of my own thing, in fact. Uh, I mean, even though ASHRAE has come out with a... Uh, a sampling protocol to assess um, just the uh, HVAC filter component, and they just measure downstream of the filters. You know, it's it's a little ingenuous to me. There, they were one of the first to say, "Oh, we, we we need to talk about integrated design." And I'm saying, "Well, what about integrated performance? If you're going to look at particulate, you should really look at the endpoint of the supply diffuser, and not just downstream from the filters." because that's not telling you anything about the distribution system. And I tend to be a big believer in understanding the importance of the distribution system, both in terms of particulate, but also in terms of ventilation performance. Is the air getting to where the people are? Okay. Back to that, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, I've got a couple text questions. I'll get to those after halftime. I'd like to get one more question in before halftime, David. We, we went through sure. the, the uh, CO2, the dew point, tracer gas, particulate. The last thing I had was pressure mapping and air f- airflow pattern determination. Can you just talk briefly to our listeners about how you do that type of uh, service for your, uh, your clients? Well, a lot of times you need to know, you know where the air is coming from. And um, one example comes to mind that there was a post-anesthesia care unit in a hospital, a PACU, and the nurses were complaining about irritation on their skin. And so I said, well... The air coming from their filters in a hospital is typically excellent. So where is the air coming from that might be contributing some kind of air contaminant? And so I used, well, back then I might have used my wizard stick, but now I've got the, the, the new dragon puffer, which looks far more professional in the field. And I documented that the majority of the air was coming from the corridor where the ORs were, but there were never ever any complaints in the OR. So I, um, having determined where the air was going, was coming from, I decided to do a survey, and I found a a bone tissue freezer, and I looked at that, and all the working parts of the compressor were covered with um, lint from from blankets. And so I I paused, and I said, well, if if one understands the psychrometry, then there's going to be, if it's going to be a compressor, that refrigerant is going to be very cold, and it's going to be below the local dew point. And so because it's below the local dew point, moisture is going to be available for the growth of microorganisms. And so I said, you know, you've got a microbiological problem. It's centered on the uh, refrigerant lines of this uh, freezer. If you clean them, the problem should go away. And they cleaned it, and the problem went away. So here was uh, an example of a, a microbial problem that was understood and resolved without having to turn it into a research project and determine whether it was cladosporium or aspergillus or whatever mold was growing. So there's no sampling involved, but yet I was able to understand and resolve a microbial problem. I think that too many people are too quick to do sampling without necessarily understanding how that information, whether it's cladosporium or aspergillus, is really going to help uh, people understand and resolve the underlying moisture problem you know you brought up 
the wizard stick and the uh, dragon puffer for those listeners that aren't familiar with where where you get those that's at zerotoys.com they have another website now i believe for the dragon puffer what it was is they had a toy actually that a lot of indoor air quality people realized was a good smoke testing piece of smoke testing equipment in fact i was telling david earlier i was using one uh, yesterday I had the, the gun, actually, uh, not the wizard stick. But uh, if you just press the button a little bit and let it kind of uh, melt that uh, glycol or whatever it is in there. I'm not sure what the compound is. But anyway, um, you can get those at zerotoys.com. And now they have another website. They developed one, actually, for professionals out in the field because I guess they got so much feedback that people were using their toys for indoor air quality investigations. Is that David, you said you know the people. Is that accurate? Or? I know the people. That's, that's very accurate. I, I think... Um Blowing my own horn for a moment, I think I was somewhat instrumental in alerting um, IAQ professionals that this option existed, which was very well received because historically you'd use either titanium dioxide or fuming sulfuric acid, which were rather noxic in themselves. And so all of a sudden, here's a way to um, generate a, a, a visible cloud that's completely non-toxic because it's FDA approved for use with children in, in a toy. So it was... Uh, really found its place, and um, I, I can take a little bit of pride in, in helping making that transition and letting people know that it existed. Absolutely. We appreciate that. I, in fact, we've got two listeners just texted in about their own uh, experience with their wizard sticks. <laughs> One was asked if it was a bong, I, but anyway... <laughs> David, it, it did have that problem, yes. <laughs> We've got to just stop for, uh, I think it's a two-minute break here, and thank our sponsors. We're just going to run our, our sponsors and then come right back. It's been a great interview. We want to get right back to it. I'll be here waiting for you, sir. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. 
All right. We're back with today's guest, David Berg. Dave, do we have you back on the line? True and correct. Great. All right. Now, before the break, we had gone through the different types of you know, evaluation you do, whether it's CO2, dew point, particle testing, tracer gas, etc. I'd like to, if you would, if you could take that and kind of put together for the listeners a little, a, 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 give them a, a picture of how you take that on a project, let's say, and, and how you've been able to solve um, a building owner's problems by using those different uh, evaluation techniques and maybe give us an overview of how you solve the problem. Well, those are all kind of, you know, pictures in my bullpen. Um, what I first want to do is um, listen to not only the, the building owner, but the people who have the concerns, because sometimes I find that it's not necessarily communicated. And th these are all cl clues, trying to figure out, okay, what, 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 what is the symptomology? And then in my mind, come up with a hypothesis for explaining the symptomology that might be uh, occurring, or... Um, in terms of, of doing a report card, what is the ventilation performance? I find that a, a critical component in almost any analysis. So it really depends from um, what the particular problem is. You know, everything from, well, we had this uh, air to, rooftop air-to-air -air heat exchanger, it froze solid. We want to know whether there was any internal uh, leakage that was created. So I'll do a, a tracer test to see if it's um, carrying from one side to the other determined it wasn't. So the, the, it, the, my work tends to be somewhat site-specific in terms of trying to figure out what questions uh, they're trying to answer, whether it's, you know, why, why are people getting headaches in the afternoon, to why are we getting this odor, to other, um, you know, why, why are people getting sick, why does this space smell like vomit? Um, so it, it, there is no one particular technique I use throughout. I, I need to understand and then use whatever tools are, are possible to test any hypothesis. If I've got multiple hypotheses and I need to pick and choose from among them, I need to get more information. Let me just focus on two of those parameters then, the CO2 and the dew point, because I think this is something you do that is, is probably somewhat rare in that you set up these systems where you've got a central location where you collect the data and you um, analyze the the air through the use of, I guess it's a Tygon tube going out to different parts of the building. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain to listeners in a little more detail how you go about setting that up. Okay, well actually it's just pennies a foot pneumatic tubes uh, I find are, are non-reactive to the dew point and the, the carbon dioxide. So that, that makes it a lot cheaper than having to go to a, a Tygon. But um, the first thing I do is where will the ventilation system be most challenged in terms of, of greatest occupant density? So typically that's waiting rooms, conference rooms, um, cafeterias, um, lecture halls, things like that. And then I also look at the layout of the ductwork to see if there are any long runs um, that terminate. Not all buildings have that. You know, many many have uh, kind of a circle with with short uh, takeoff. But if there is a, a long duck run, I like to pick up the uh, behavior at the very end, figuring that if if that location that's far from the air handler is well ventilated, anything closer would be. And if they're also doing the dew point, 
I like to look at exterior low-level buildings such that I can look and compare the dew point in the, in the humidified in, inside and the cold outdoor air in the winter to see whether infiltration is occurring because if you don't have an effective air barrier, it's hard for you to pressurize the space and exclude outdoor air contaminants, and, and you're also wasting energy at the same time. So once I've decided what the critical locations are, I look to see the um, pathways for vertical and horizontal distribution, string the, the home run tubes back to the central location, and then from then on I can get a lot of information about the performance of the HVAC system. If I'm looking at supply return and outdoor air at the air handler, I can calculate the percentage of outdoor air in the supply air, see if it's similar for the different air handlers, see if it varies through the day. Uh, I'm finding a lot of variation. I can also, uh, at the air handler, look to see how well they're dehumidifying the air. In fact, I found one building, the internal panel had ripped loose, and so there was bypass around the cooling coil, and so there was less dehumidification going on in terms of humidification. That's a very high-maintenance system. In one building, there was two air handlers that were appropriately humidifying. One wasn't. It was barely above outdoors. And then there was a fourth location where the humidification was cycling sort of between the uh, parameters of the others. So those are very important, both health-related and energy-related aspects. And then I'm also looking at the high occupancy locations, and I'm seeing CO2 levels that can start rising significantly at the start of the building, typically because it's a VAV system and the space was overcooled, so it takes a while for the thermostat to sense the heat given off by the people. So the early part of the meeting is significantly underventilated, sometimes as little as 6 CFM per person based on the CO2 level getting above 2,000. And in terms of indoor air quality and health, that's a very bad situation because if there's an individual that's shedding uh, viruses, then everybody else in the room is at risk. And uh, Professor Milton did an interesting study at uh, Polaroid where they sort of did a double-blind study where they had lots of different office spaces and they categorized them either as just at ASHRAE 62.1 or slightly above, and much above 62, and they found that there was a significant reduction in short-term absentee in the more generously ventilated spaces, and they put numbers to a dollar value to the reduced absenteeism, and they came to the conclusion that for every dollar invested in additional ventilation, they were getting $6 back for reduced absentee rates. So that information has yet to you know, filter out into um, more places. So I'm, I'm very honored to have the opportunity to share that information with you and your your listeners. And that's referenced, or, I'm sorry, it's on your website too, right? There's a link to the Milton? I, um, I don't immediately remember. I believe it's sorry. on the Life Energy. Could you give us that Life Energy website? Okay, that's um, www.life. E-N-E-R-G-Y-A-S-S-O-C dot com. Life Energy Assos. And, I'm uh, almost positive it's there's a link to it on there, David. Right up in the front end, it says Milton, and then there's a link, but I didn't click it. Cliff, I know you had a couple questions. Yeah, I, I do, Dave. When you string all this uh, tubing you know, within a building, can you monitor more than one area at a time? No. 
um, there, there is a, a sequencer that looks at one location, then it looks at the next location, then it looks at the next location. And, and that, the, the dwell time is one thing that varies considerably between the, the two approaches for this multipoint monitoring. Um, there's air acuity, and they have to dwell on each location long enough for that packet of air to transverse the entire difference. Uh, the air expert, which, by the way, my name is on the patent, so I, for full um, transparency, it uses uh, a manifold that's double solenoid at each location. So it, the, the computer can pre-purge each additional, um, each, each, each location that's next in the queue. So by the time it switches over, it only needs to dwell on that location long enough for the sensor to respond to whatever the step change is. And so that can go through uh, locations a lot more quickly. It can dwell time as little as 20 seconds, whereas the air acuity has to dwell longer, and so you can't get as much data per unit time as you could with the air expert system. Uh, what would the maximum but, distance be? I'm sorry. Oh, it's about 700 feet. Okay. And is there but some to sort be fair, Go ahead. But to be fair, the air acuity system is, is different in that it, it, it can also look at particulate and can look at temperature, but in order to achieve that, it has a very expensive custom sampling line. So it, it, uh, th there's, there's an interesting choice in the marketplace as this component of, of smart buildings is, is starting to evolve. Is there some sort of vacuum pump or pump that pulls this air in? Or it's exactly, okay. vacuum. They're both vacuum pump-based. Okay. And how many points... Uh, I'm sorry, how many points can you monitor... Well, um, the manifold for the air expert is up to uh, up to 48 locations, and the sensor suite for air acuity, I believe, is up to 16. Um, and, but then there's multiple solenoids out in the field that open and close at various times, depending on where you want to pull the air from. Okay, now I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to give us a ballpark idea of how much these systems cost. Oh. So maybe a thousand dollars a point for air experts. So if you're looking at uh, 48 points, that's uh, you know 48 thousand dollars that you need to to budget in order to get that feedback on actual ventilation and moisture management performance. And these are typically a building owner puts them into the building and they stay. And and as I understand, it, you can rent these as well. Right. That's the two options. You can either buy the whole package or you can rent the unit for a short term, but you still need to install the network of tubes. But nowadays, with more buildings having local area networks and having accessible uh, pathways to run tubes, both horizontally and vertically through the buildings, uh, installing the tubes may not be that onerous. All right. David, I need to get back to some text questions. I've got a list of them here. Um, one of them, and that's the reason I asked the, the pricing question, too, because one of the questions was, could you go up a little bit, Val, for me there? Um, other than using CO2, are there other alternative methods that you would suggest for people that don't necessarily have these capabilities that may yield useful information? Uh, I'm, I'm very much in the carbon dioxide camp as 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 each CO2 measurement reflects the dynamic interaction between the people, their activity, their duration of occupancy, and how the ventilation component of the HVAC system is responding to that challenge. I mean, there's people out there that say, oh, well, the CO2, that's just 
tells you how many people there are. And uh, I, I sort of challenged that dismissal because I, you know, I was in a situation in which there were rather elevated, you know, in excess of 900 ppm CO2 readings in a building at night, and it turns out it was one night watchman who was sleeping in a room where uh, the CO2 was being sensed in a tight room. So that was one person driving it up. How would you know that? You know, it doesn't tell you how many people. It tells you the dynamic interaction between the number of people and the HVAC system. And that's what you, I think that's what you want to know in buildings, especially as buildings are evolving where there's less heat loss across the building envelope, the lighting is more efficient as daylighting comes in, so the energy needed to condition and deliver outdoor air for ventilation is becoming a larger percentage of the total energy used for the building, and more and more people are realizing just how, how much your people are costing. I ask potential clients to figure out what their people are costing them on a per square foot basis, and you know, it varies from building to building, but I think $300 is a good rough estimate. And if I ask people how much they're spending on energy, it's usually around $3 a square foot. So if if the ventilation is improved and their productivity, the value of the work being put out by the people increases by just 1%, that totally negates the cost of the, the total cost of energy. So I think that's something that's a very compelling argument for the need to look into ventilation performance. It just needs to get out that word to the decision makers. And so I guess for for people that obviously, you know, not everybody can put one of these systems into a building. And if you've got um, indoor air quality consultants out there trying to assess ventilation issues in buildings, you're, you're suggesting they use CO2. Can you give them some tips for how to make better use of the instruments they have or or um, some common mistakes that are made when assessing ventilation? Well, um, yeah, the, the, the more expensive systems aren't really going to be cost justifiable until at least you get north of 100,000 square feet, and, you know, sweet spots maybe between 200 and 400 square, 1,000 square feet. But for just using the individual handheld sensor, I think it's important to remember to not place it too, too close to any individual that might breathe on it, especially if they're walking around with it because the exhaled breath of a person is around 40,000 parts per million. So if you just have, you know, 1% of that, that's 400 ppm added to the, uh, the reading if, if you get 1% of the exhaled breath. So a reading that might otherwise be 800 ppm all of a sudden is now 1,200 ppm just because the investigator or an occupant was able to breathe on the uh, on the device itself. So that's something to be aware of and to make sure your experimental procedure uh, recognizes that fact. And when we're talking about CO2, I wonder if you could give listeners your experience on outdoor CO2 levels and, and how widely they fluctuate and what might cause those fluctuations. Well, the, the cleanliness of the air and the um, uh, urban nature of the building, the highest outdoor CO2 levels I've ever recorded with 520 parts per million in Pittsburgh, hmm. um, I think back in 2003 at one of the Green Build conferences. Shocking. But as, <laughs> as you people know that, you know, in the downtown you get the buses and you're in a river valley, and so if you get a any kind of a, a wintertime inversion, the air quality goes down significantly. But then on the final day, 
the winds picked up significantly, flushed that all out, and it was more, you know, typically 410 that one would see in a relatively well-ventilated uh, urban area. Okay. I've got two more quick text questions I think you'll be able to pick up quickly, and then we'll go to our roundup in a moment. But one is... Um, do you have any thoughts on demand-controlled ventilation using carbon dioxide sensing? Oh, I think that's a, an important thing that, that the future will be incorporating more and more. Um, there are some significant challenges, and um, there was a, a study by Lawrence Berkeley that pointed out the, the limitations of, of many of the CO2 sensors. So it's, it, it's a great potential benefit, but it's difficult to achieve, in fact, because individual CO2 sensors have a tendency to drift and fail. But that's a way to balance the often competing needs of providing a healthy indoor environment and energy demands on the building. So if you've got a variable occupancy location, it's sort of a, with, with a large enough uh, airflow, it's sort of a no-brainer to implement a demand-controlled ventilation strategy. It's sometimes hard on a retrofit because not all HVAC systems have the inherent flexibility to be able to increase the amount of ventilation upon a rise, in, uh, upon a signal from a rising CO2 sensor. One more, David, a text question. Do you also, when appropriate, check for proper balancing, test and balancing, I guess, of HVAC systems? Well, it depends. I, it, I don't go around with a flow hood, but the... Um, CO2 will tell me how the balancing is and how the distribution of the ventilation component of the supplier. And since the, uh, so I, I look at the percentage of outdoor air, which is one component of the, uh, the air being delivered. And then, you know, it's sort of like a comparison of just looking at the air flows without knowing, at the supply diffuser, without knowing what the percentage of outdoor air is like a static uh, wheel balancing as compared with the dynamic wheel balancing where the building actually has people in it and you're looking at the resulting CO2 levels. If there's a, a, a deficiency of air, that'll show up in an elevated CO2 level. So I find that the CO2 is, is a far more rigorous um, test of the uh, air balancing distribution in the building. All right. It's, I've got 12.54 here, gang. Let's go to our roundup. What we're going to do is go to the roundup, David. We're going to bring you, uh, bring Dr. Wow on for a moment. He'll have a comment, I'm sure, on this issue. He loves ventilation issues. And then um, we'll ask you another question. Do you have a, an extra five minutes in case we run over? Oh, for you, make it 10 if need be. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I think it may be. <laughs> we'll, be right, we'll be right back. Over my head. All right, let's. Cliff's got one uh, for the roundup before we bring on Dr. Wow. Yeah, Dave, I've got a question. Uh, in terms of resolving odor complaints where an occupant smells something, it would seem to me that you know, the portable GC could be quite effective. Have you ever had an odor complaint that you used the equipment and were unable to solve? 
the pro- or unable to determine the source? No, I've I've had well, um, what I'm doing with the with the equipment is not doing an analysis of what the odor is. I'm doing it to see is there a pathway between the suspected source location and where the complaints are showing up, and so. The, the odor of concern doesn't need to be there. I can generate my own, and by varying the location of the release, I can test different hypotheses as to where the odor might be coming from. And so that's, um, that's more the approach. Than it's, it, it's a very specific chemical analysis. The, the portable GC is set up very specifically by its column to separate um, the SF6 component from the oxygen and just about everything else. SF6 is a very large molecule, so the GC column, the gas chromatograph, is sort of an obstacle course for gases, and the, it takes a long time for the SF6 to trans, transit that column where everything else comes through quickly. Thanks. So um, that's more identifying the, the physical pathways in the building that might be uh, allowing the odor to, to go through. All right, let's bring Dr. Wow. Good afternoon, Dieter. Good afternoon, Joe. How are you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? All right. Good. Uh, do we have another hour? I knew I had a feeling you might say that, Dieter. Let's <laughs> let's get some comments and questions. Let's chat a little with David here. What do you think? I mean, I I share a lot of of, of thoughts uh, uh, which uh, David uh, told us about. But anyway, I go to the top, and there Andy, my good friend Andy, whom I will be seeing on Monday morning at six o'clock. Uh, uh, did it again. He got beat this and week. And you were absolutely yeah. right. There are glycols in there which generate the smoke from those toys, and they're actually called edible glycols. So we don't use uh, cooling fluid from our cars for that. Gotcha. Uh, SF6, that is sulfur hexafluoride, that is that tracer gas. And when I, ha- I was uh, trying to use it, and this is 30 years ago, it was a pitch to be able to measure that. It's such a stable molecule. I like everything about it. There is no background. It is very low uh, toxicity and so on. I still use carbon monoxide, (laughs) and my monitors are a lot cheaper than that. (laughs) The next step I have over here, and uh, David uh, mentioned that too. In fact, that is the final step after he makes all the measurements. I solved many venti- uh, many uh, uh, problems by just increasing the ventilation. Now, does that cost more money? They've mentioned that. Yes, it does. But it does help in the final analysis. It really does. And talking about ventilation, I have here where I have to get the ductwork. Boy, he must be lucky. I have never been able to trace some of the ductwork. I said, where the heck is it coming from and where is it going? And in the old days, that was 40 years ago. Now at the tender age of 73, I do not crawl around in attics anymore. Chase <laughs> on that. Forget it. Maybe I should hire somebody younger than me. Uh, the other thing he mentioned is that CIH certification. I'm in the same boat. And uh, I may have difficulties, even though I probably listened 
and helped with what? 90% of the, this radio show? You've probably been on over the last 200 year. shows, I Dan. Get, I should get uh, a little bit of uh, credit for that. You will. The other <laughs> one is also, and I just went through that. I know exactly how David thinks, uh, feels about that. I was in an office building, three-story office building. Everybody happy. Comma, however, one guy. Oh, I know there's something wrong with the air. And what do you mean? I said, well, I come over here and, well, uh, well, I got the job. And there is one, a total of, in round numbers, 200 people. In round numbers, 200 people. I think it's a little bit more. Who cares? 200 people. One guy complained. I made a ton of money taking ridiculous measurements, and I found out that, you know, everything was absolutely in the best shape possible. And, um, but it's, it's that, you know, I don't like that 20, if 20% of the people are complaining, you are doing okay. Well, let's go one step further. If 19% complain, you are all right. <laughs> um, skin uh, cells and particulate matter. I, a, a friend of, uh, not a friend, actually, and a friend and a former student of mine worked, this is years ago, at an IBM facility somewhere in New Jersey. And boy, did we have to get wrapped up in Tyvek suits. Uh, basically, the only thing that, that was uh, open to the atmosphere were our eyes. It is unbelievable how much we are uh, doing over there. Uh, David said also, if some idiot tells you that the carpet is an air filter, <laughs> Uh, tell him to come to my office, and uh, I show him my carpet, and I tell I said, hey, you know, when I step on it, I'm going to generate a cloud over here. Like pig pen on uh, <laughs> peanuts. <huh? laughs> yeah. The other thing is also, and uh, with, yeah, with that CO2, we got to be careful. There are guidelines. The um, uh, ASHRAE had... The American Society of Refrigerator and Air Conditioning Engineers had a, a guideline of a thousand, which for some strange reason, in fact, there's no re rhyme or reason to it, went down to 750. And I was on a witness stand, and some idiotic lawyer uh, tried to convince a judge that his client was exposed to 1,010 ppm of carbon dioxide and he wanted a million dollars because the guy is injured. He should have measured what the guy is exhaling. <laughs> yeah, we're like, it's 700 over, over outdoors now, isn't it, David? Excuse me? 700 over outdoors now in the ASHRAE for uh, um, well, parts per million carbon dioxide? There's a relationship oxide. between that. I mean, if you're content to achieve 15 CFM of outdoor air per person, that corresponds to 700 indoors over outdoors. If you're shooting for um, 20 CFM, then that differential is 530 indoors over outdoors, no more than. And I think you yeah. agree that there's no, I know I had one of the questions we had put in the, in the list of things we wanted to talk about was, are there health issues with respect to CO2? And I, I think you agreed with Dr. Wow. Oh, I agree. It's it's not the CO2, but it's a very CO2 is a very good indicator of bioactivity. I have no problem with that. Right, right. Yeah. The, the, the toxicity 
of CO2 is zilch, you know. I mean, how do you, uh, how do you uh, reconcile that you are exhaling, I mean, well over, well over five, well, the TLV, uh, the threshold limit value, and the PEL, the permissible exposure limit, are 5,000 under OSHA and HCGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. It's the highest TLV in the booklet, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and it's 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 absolutely ridiculous. The other thing, and I warn everybody, when you measure for CO2 and you run it through a tubing, that is one thing. If you are trying to measure particulate matter through a tubing, be it Tigon, God forbid it is Tigon, and you want to measure particulate matter several feet away from it, adios, that tubing is going to be an absolute filter, I tell you. There is nothing coming out at the other end. And I tell this also to people, you've got to watch that when they take uh, wall samples for molds. There is a, a gadget. In fact, I'm looking at one over here, and it's about 12 inches long. And I said, you are losing mold spores inside that tubing. You've got to watch that. And I don't know where you learn those things anymore. Uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. Well, let but me ask. I, I got a text question here, dear. Let me ask either one of you. Let's start with David. Why do people, you know, and I think this is a good point. Even though CO2, you're both saying, is not causing indoor environmental complaints such as headaches and drowsiness, why when... Uh, CO2 levels are higher. He's asking, do people seem to complain more about headaches and drowsiness? He's, he's saying it's a real effect, he or she. I can't tell. Um, do you think it's because other things are building up in the environment? Or do you exactly. Think, uh, exactly. Um, you know, CO2 is a very good indicator of the bioeffluence. So if, if CO2 levels are building up, then things like the pheromones that we naturally um, discharge are also building up. The bacteria that live on their skin, and the interesting fact I know there is that, that I read that there are more bacteria on our skin than there are cells in our body. Well, they contribute waste products by their metabolism, and those will also build up. And then if there's any um, off-gassing from any furnishings or any um, VOCs coming off the copiers or printers, then those are also building up. So, yes, there is a relationship between the level of CO2 and uh, comfort and healthfulness, but it's not the CO2. That's an indicator of what's happening in the dynamic relationship between all air contaminants and the ventilation system. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, uh, i tell you what, we, we'd like to get this wrapped up here. Dear, do you have any more, uh, maybe one well, more you want to? I just, in fact, I will not mention his name. Well, nobody knows who he is. Uh, Nelson called me the other day. He said, Dieter, 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 I'm in an office building, and I'm measuring 9 ppm of carbon monoxide, CO. So what the heck am I going to do now? And I said, well, you don't have to call the undertaker, but you better spend the better part of the day to find where those 9 ppm of CO are coming from. <laughs> 9 ppm of C, well, that is the National Ambient Air Quality Standard for outdoor air for, quote, everybody. And I said, 
if you have 9 ppm of CO in that building, I want to know tomorrow where it is coming from. And you and your buddy, you have both uh, CO2 monitors. You go through the whole place until you find the hot spot. <laughs> and I gave him a couple of hints on the, and that was, that was a week ago. Uh, maybe try the heating system first. There may be a cracked heat exchanger. That's probably where it is coming from. Or ventilation from a hot water tank or something like that. I mean, like I said, 9 ppm will not do anything to anybody. But if 9 ppm is in the building, I want to know where it is coming from. Well, it, it he is. hung up and said, I think I have work to do. And I said, I think, you, I think so too. David, that's the National Ambient Air Quality Standard. is is 9 ppm, but I'm wondering, do you ever see that outdoors? No, I I, I don't see that. That's the National Ambient right. for, but for um, um, for eight hours. For for one hour, it's it's 35. But what's interesting is the CO, which historically is a concern from motor vehicles in um, underground parking garages, and so the the control is based on CO. But most cars have functioning catalytic converters. So uh, in many buildings, the car comes in, but it's not generating any CO, but it's generating a lot of other things. A lot of other things. A lot of toxics, oxides of nitrogen. So I recommend that ventilation be controlled not only by CO, but also CO2, because cars generate their tailpipe exhaust is 150,000 ppm of CO2. So I've been involved with, you know, looking at the difference in CO and CO2 and that especially in healthcare facilities where you've got patients, vulnerable patients parking in the basement of the building, they are ventilating in terms of controlling both CO2 as well as CO to provide a healthy environment for people coming in and parking in their basement. Absolutely. I agree 100%. It is just one indicator of what comes out of that exhaust pipe. You know, if, if, uh, there, there are hundreds of chemicals coming through there. I don't know what they are, but we got to watch those also, yes. David, before we go, I, I have one thing I'd like you to answer for me, and then if, if there's anything you'd like to add that we missed, and obviously we're going to miss some things, uh, I want you to let us know that as well. But you, you and I talked a little bit about kind of the future of indoor air quality and energy efficiency. I wonder if you could kind of summarize for people where you think we're headed. Oh, I think we're headed towards more intelligent buildings where the operators have access to accurate diagnostic feedback on healthfulness as indicated by accurate CO2 and dew point monitoring because that'll give you information on both ventilation performance and moisture management performance, the two key contributing parameters for healthfulness. All right. And anything that we missed that you'd like to add? Oh, I could go on, but I think I think we've covered the important stuff. <laughs> I'm sure we could. I, I think between you and Dr. Wow, we could easily do another hour here, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Cliff, anything you wanted to add before we go? I think there's too much CO2 in this room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that... I want to thank this week's guest, David Berg, from Life Energy Associates, and uh, we really appreciate you you being on the show with us today. Uh, If you want to check out more about his company, it's lifeenergyassoc.com, David? Correct. Okay, and of course, check out the sagefarm.net, S-A-G-E, 
Farm.net, interesting stuff on there. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you all, and uh, have a healthy and fun weekend, everybody. Great. Yeah. All right. Wherever you're listening from, as uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes also saying thanks to the Z-Man. Another it was fun, Joe. Fun yeah, week. Uh, Valerie Bender at the controls. Yep, no idea. glitches, Val. Nice job. All right. No feedback in my ear. None of that stuff. Well, that's the equipment, uh, not the operator. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, thanks again for joining us. Uh, but most importantly... Our growing group of loyal listeners, we had a nice online crowd today. Great questions. Come back and join us. By the way, next week we've got an interesting show. One of our past guests may well be going to jail here over contempt of court. We're going to talk to her. We're going to have, I believe, Elliot Horner and or Glenn Fellman from the Indoor Air Quality Association. I'm trying to get uh, Carlos Gonzalez Boothby on from the NADCA uh, convention coming up in Puerto Rico. We're going to talk a little bit about international issues. We're going to talk about the upcoming events in 2012. And we're going to get an update from Sharon on her situation. That will be next week, Friday January 20th on IAQ Radio at noon. Come back and join us then. another IAQ radio production. Call recording has been completed.